Hi, thanks for tuning in to the Generative Work Podcast with me, Sarah James Wright, exploring all aspects of future business and conscious leadership. we're going to be talking about embracing uncertainty, which is one of the capacities we've identified of a generative leader. And I say we because I'm delighted that I'm joined today by my co-founder of Generative Workspace, Alison Wooding. So hi, Ali. Hi, Sarah. And uh, in true form to embrace uncertainty, we have not prepared. <laughs> no, we haven't. We are just going to have a conversation and see what flows and embrace the uncertainty of a dialogue about uncertainty. Brilliant. How does Thanks, that feel? It's a great introduction. <laughs> Thank you. So one of the things that I've noticed about this idea of embracing uncertainty is that it really sits with a lot of the other capacities of a generative leader that we talk about, such as working with what is you know, not trying to control everything, not having an expectation of how things will be, not being run by this perfectionist idea that everything's got to be done right. And somehow embracing uncertainty really sits alongside all of those other capacities that we talk about. So that um, if we're really going to be working with what is, if we're not going to project our ego and will onto the task situation space ahead of us, then we have to stop and sit back and see kind of what's coming towards us. And of course, in that space, we don't know what we're going to see. That seems to me the kind of the, where that leadership quality comes in, that at that point, you need to be able to find some level of comfort with uncertainty. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And what you're really highlighting there is that what we're doing is we're taking a very conscious stance. So we're coming into a space with an openness and a willingness to see what's really here. And that doesn't mean that we don't have an idea of what we're doing, of course, because we set a very strong intention and we know what we're in service of and what Mm. we're here to look at. But then what we're doing is we're allowing the full space to really explore and discover what's in it and especially to open up the space for the unexpected. That's absolutely yeah. critical. Yeah. And it's interesting with this because I've, I keep sort of circling round um, a bit of a theme at the moment about what it takes to be creative, you know, what it takes to be a kind of really innovative, adaptive team. And I've kind of come up with three prerequisites. One is that you have to give yourselves the time and space to be able to kind of go into a creative process fully. Uh, The second one is that you have to be able to embrace uncertainty. And the third one is that you have to give yourself permission to fail. You have to step off that perfectionist bandwagon. So I think there is something about this capacity to embrace uncertainty being central to coming up with new ideas. Otherwise, we're always coming from the same mindset, the same framework that we've always set ourselves up with. Yes. And and what you're also pointing out is that the mind is always wanting to find validation and to prove what it already knows. So we really are opening up a mind space and a heart space to really discover what's there rather than to reinforce the current reality. Yeah. And when you say that, it really reminds me that the kind of dominant culture in organizations at the moment is this kind of expert achiever model. So we're kind of prized for what we know, what we can um, control, really. You know, the idea of kind of all the looking at risk all the time and trying to, you know, obviously one wants to minimize risk. This isn't like a recklessness. But that idea of being able to control everything with your knowledge, as opposed to developing an awareness of what what else might be going on here around the edges that if I just impose my will on it, I've not been able to see. I think the other thing is that we are operating in an environment of insecurity and uncertainty. So in that environment, we're more likely to regress back into defending our territory, making sure that we're valuable making sure we're being seen and, you know, super performing, 
which of course is creating extra pressure. When in reality, what we're really looking for are new pathways through and ways of really working together, because the more we work together, more collaborative and more effective we can be as a team or as an organization. That, that's really key. But of course, you rock back into the, the me and my survival, which is also you know, part of that whole mindset that we're looking to shift. I think that's true. And in response to, you know, they often call it the, the VUCA VUCA world. I never know how you say that. What does that sound for? Volatile, uncertain, certain, something and something. I can't remember in this moment. I used to work oh, that 15 years ago. Funnily. I know. It's it was like the it's, word of the moment. Yeah, but that, that word that means like, I don't know what the hell's going on kind of world, which of course mm. we're in more than ever. It's interesting you saying about rocking back into that more controlling position. And I think organizations really have a tendency to drive that, you know, out of fear, particularly in the in the environment that we're in at the minute. I mean, no, you know, no shade to organizations in a sense for feeling fearful about the future and wanting to preserve as many jobs as possible and so on. But there's often a tendency at that point, like you say, to rock back into fear-based controlling behaviors. And in a sense, it just means get smaller, get more scared, like hunker down, narrow your kind of field of operation. Whereas there's always an opportunity when things are uncertain to actually lean in a bit and to discover, well, what, what is a pathway through this? What is the opportunity that uncertainty also brings? Something strikes me in this moment, Sarah, as you're speaking as well, that in a way, the first thing to do is just stop. Yeah. Like I really felt it just as you were speaking then because it felt very action oriented. But it's that first moment where you just stop and see where you are, not where you think you are, but where you are. And then no, really notice what's present. So as I was doing that as a kind of little internal exercise, as I heard you speaking, I got in touch with my, my body and my felt senses. And I just noticed what was really present for me in this moment. And it strikes me that that's an ongoing practice for us. It's like a kind of moment to moment checking in with self, checking in with the field of life. Because we're so often imposing ideas, you know, projecting ideas onto reality that we don't actually stop to feel it and live it and be in it. Yeah. Because that's really key as well. I think that's really true. And a lot of that, again, is driven by that pressure to perform. You know, we have to act, we have to do something to be seen and valued to manage this. And so it feels at first quite counterintuitive to think, okay, in the face of this onslaught, I'm just going to stop for a second and try and tune in and make sense of what's going on. But I do think that is, that is the way forward. And I've noticed, you know, like you say, in just little everyday ways, we can begin to do that. And just to give a really tiny example, recently, because I've had problems sleeping, I've, I've noticed that I had an expectation that I would wake up in the morning feeling rested and ready to kind of get up and go about my day and start work. And actually, I'm now in this period of uncertainty where I wake up, I, don't, I won't know from one day to the next whether I'll have had a good night's sleep, whether I'll feel well in the morning, whether I'll feel up to starting work. And just even in that tiny example, I'd noticed that I had an expectation that I was going to wake up and feel a certain way every morning. And I don't know how I'm going to feel. And even that, do you know what I mean? Just that checking in of like, well, how, how am I today? Yeah, what's possible today? What do I really need to attend to? It's, it's conserving your energy and finding out what's really important for today. And it just struck me listening to you as well, that this is, this is actually true of lots of people at the moment because of the COVID virus and because of what's been happening and because of people being on furlough and losing their jobs. This uncertainty is churning. It's churning us on the inside. And lots of people are reporting not being able to sleep. So I love that you've given a personal example of something that's actually really relevant to lots of people right now. And what do you do with that? And how do you go into work bringing yourself exactly as you are if yeah. you are working or managing the uncertainty if you're currently not or have a very uncertain future? Yeah. I mean, there's lots of people I know that are in a very difficult place with uncertainty at the moment. And a friend of mine's been made redundant. And you know, obviously he's experiencing fear around that. But talking to him about it and thinking, well, it, it could also be an opportunity to get out into a very different field. Mm. 
you know, he, he wasn't entirely happy in the field that he was in. It's in a sense a declining industry, particularly at the moment. So, you know, maybe it's an opportunity and he's talking about perhaps he'll retrain. And it's just that idea that even in, in little ways we can see, is there a kind of a gift in that uncertainty for yeah, us? Absolutely. And something very similar happened to my husband as well. Uh, because his project was just suddenly wiped by the company he was working for at that moment, contracts all cancelled. And in that space of just looking and seeing and not panicking, he just started doing some of the lovely hobby work he loves, you know, making things and creating things, which he does from scratch. And uh, he was posting it up online very randomly. And then the next thing you know, that he got an email completely out of the blue from some people that are planning a TV series and asking if he'd be interested in making a model for them, sort of six foot sort of model wow. for their TV series. So this is a wonderful example of something completely out of the blue that actually is his true passion, yeah. which he can then do alongside his other work. But it was for me, that was a wonderful confirmation from life of, yeah, okay, so one thing's gone. What yeah. wants to happen next? And the fact, I love that story. That's such a good example, isn't it, of what we're talking about, about also, you know, part of our approach is not to sort of focus in so narrowly on the problem, but to sit back and notice, well, what's going on around this? And actually in that sort of wider perspective, you might see opportunities or you'll allow yourself to enjoy something like, like you're saying, even like a hobby, like modeling. You can allow yourself to take the pleasure in that now that you've got a little bit more time. And life can send you an opportunity that you could never have kind of... And, and if you tried to do that for yourself <laughs> and say, do you know what, I'm going to reorient myself towards this and I'm yeah. going to work in this field. It, it just couldn't happen in the same way. I mean, this is what we're talking about, working with a generative field, working with life. Yeah, absolutely. That there's always a lot more going on than we kind of see within our sphere of control. Exactly. So I think that's something around the nature of control. And we keep sort of using that perhaps as a, as a sort of balance, as an opposite to embracing uncertainty is, is kind of managing with control. There's something about control that it always makes things smaller. You know, whatever you think you control, you make it small enough that you think you can have an effect on it. So you're always narrowing the field of possibilities. Yes, that's exactly it. I think the same thing also, actually, when you're kind of someone's managing people, you know, we've all had micromanagers at some point in our work lives. And in a sense, they feel, I think, from that micromanager's point of view, that they're wanting it to go so well that they've got to have a hand in everything and, and control all of it. But of course, that really inhibits the people they're managing from bringing their full selves and their creativity to the table. Because actually what they're permitted to do has been constricted. And I think in a generative way of working, we're always looking for expansion. Yes. And, and it occurs to me just listening to you as well that we're also needing to look at each other differently. So, you know, it's opening up that space and really seeing, you know, how, how is the creativity working between me and this person in the team? And how is it working between all of us in the team? You know, are we firing off each other? Are we generating new ideas, new thoughts, new possibilities? You know, is that flow of creativity working? And is there that freedom, as you said, to get it wrong, to yeah. fail, to try something, to prototype something, to actually work not just within our own objectives that we've set for the quarter, for the year, whatever it is, but actually also to go beyond and have a kind of a play space, which is why yeah. so many companies like Google and others you know, do create space for their employees to actually have time for themselves for their own projects, for you know, they're often called passion projects, mm -hmm. because that's really important. But of course, in a generative organization, the passion projects would all flow into the main part of the business. They're not sort of treated as separate. They're part yeah. of the life of the organization. Yeah. So that, that's really important and interesting to pay attention to. I think that's true. It's like what, what we're talking about, again, is bringing the whole of you in, including your passions, including stuff that matters to you, whether it sits outside the sphere of your work or not, the quality of bringing your passion in or your well-being too, which is something else that tends to be compromised when we go into that squeeze place. If you can really bring your passion, bring your purpose, bring your creativity, bring your well-being, it's amazing what can then flow out into that workspace. Exactly. It's, it's very permission-oriented and it's also just another level of awareness. 
around that quality of contact, quality of flow, quality of creating together that we're really looking at. Yeah, and that brings me back to something else that is like a, a really recurrent theme every time we're talking about any of these capacities, which is the level of trust in the system. Because what you're describing about being able to kind of look around with your colleagues and see how well are we firing off one another? How well are we creating together? That's usually an equal measure with how much can we trust one another? Because if you haven't got that trust in your team, in your you know, f- fellows in that creative space, you're not going to feel confident enough to bring an idea that could get shot down, could get criticized. You know, you really have to build that level of trust in with that permission to fail space to say, yeah, bring stuff, try stuff. Let's, you know, let's work it out. Not all ideas may flow, but let's, let's give ourselves permission to stick it all on the table. Yeah, very true. And it's funny, I'm moving between two thoughts as I'm listening to you because one is very much in the area of the superego. Because I'm aware people are self-censoring, people are holding back, people are not risking. Because to take a risk could be potentially damaging, especially in an insecure climate. Mm. Um, but also the idea that, you know, it's the quality of what we're paying attention to. And of course, so many cultures are operating in a competitive way, you know, highly competitive. I've got to shine, I've got to be better, I've got to get the next promotion, I've got to be seen. But instead of the energy kind of looking outwards and saying, so how are we, our team, working with the other teams and divisions in the wider organization? So we're amplifying the effect. We're supporting conditions for everybody to thrive. Again, it's kind of limiting and it's reducing all the way back to, well, it's just me as a single unit or my team as a single unit. We've just got to look after our own survival. So it's quite interesting. Yeah. And, And the fear of losing your job which is just so prevalent. I mean, you know, we talk about sort of cancel culture in the social space. It's like there's a version of that in the organizational space, which is just, you know, what we'll do is have a round of redundancies. And there are organizations that keep that threat on. Oh, absolutely. As a pressure, you know, with the idea that that brings out people at their best. That to me seems so outmoded now. That idea that, you know, that cutthroat, just you've got to fight the person next to you because you might be in competition for that role. You know, that, that cannot, in my mind, bring out the best in people. No, that, that's quite right. That's creating really unsupportive conditions. Um, but I think it's really important to notice that we're not saying that there aren't downturns. We're not mm. saying that there aren't moments of squeeze for a particular organisation. So I think what we're noticing is that you're not necessarily utilizing the true capacity and potential of the people that you have in place already. And therefore, you're not innovating new revenue streams. You're not innovating new ideas, products, services, uh, collaborations with other organizations. And one of the things that we're deeply supporting is the idea that we're also serving the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So we're serving the other organizations that we're in connection with. We're looking to have an amplifying effect. Yeah. So to generate value, not just within the organization, but beyond the organization, because if the flow of value is going outwards, it means then that we are supporting each other. It becomes mutually supportive. Yeah. And this is something we know from life. Life itself is mutually supportive. Um, yeah. And so we can operate in that way too. And so to work to a scarcity and competition model, mm-hmm. it's just, it's failing us. It's just not working. It's really not working. And the damage, you know, we've seen the damage at every level, you know, every systemic level there is from that kind of way of working. And as you say, you know, this idea that can we can we flow out the benefit across teams or across even organizations? And, you know, I've seen beautiful examples where organizations are able to do that, you know, and it does it does have to move from a culture of fear to one of openness for that to be possible, though. I think it's so hard to kind of impose that from above and say, right, now we're going to be collaborative or now we're going to be creative without creating the ground that enables that to be truly possible. Very true. And what you're reminding me as well is that, of course, we do that typically in silos. You know, you have the innovation team or (laughs) an innovative project or something, and then people want to get involved with that. But it's kind of in its own silo. It's not the actual culture of the wider organization. So Absolutely. that's quite an interesting phenomenon as well. It's true because in often in those places, like the rules, the, the work rules in that innovation space are completely different to the work rules in the rest of the organization. 
So I used to find that funnily enough, even working in IT, where sort of the marketing department had permission to do certain things that, you know, the technical people didn't have the chance to do, or even the salespeople. And so you'd see it sort of popping up in pockets. And then the idea was, of course, to include everyone to create initiatives cross company that would then get everybody really involved and really feeling that joy that comes from innovating and creating and doing something new. Yeah. There's something, I think there is something a bit challenging around this, this idea that when we're in survival mode, to to be able to kind of shift into this base, this space of thinking, how do we all survive? You know, how do we all thrive rather than how do I survive? How does my company last? You know, that, that is a stretch, I think, particularly for organizations when they've got, you know, X amount of people dependent on the salary and the families, you know, dependent on that for their well-being. It's it, it's a tough ask, and maybe it's um, even tougher in a downturn. Although, like we've said, there are potentials for that. But I think at some point we have to say we're going to begin to think about this in this wider way. I what, think what's what's lovely that you're also bringing it to you is that. When there is a downturn, when there are quieter times, when things are in this kind of um, current context, there can be a kind of turning inwards, a real looking inwards and saying, you know, what is our founding purpose? What are we really here to do? What is the next evolution of this organization? So that kind of inward movement then supports a kind of deeper level of understanding, a deeper level of connection between employees in that moment, if invited into the process to say, you know, what does the future look like? You know, how can we thrive together? What needs to happen? Um, and it's interesting that when we do that consciously with a way that includes people, then you can begin to see something moving along. It's like the buoyancy, the vision, the purpose begin to really be shared and make and move forward. And of course, the alternatives is very often that if people don't sense that and see that happening in their own organization, if they're not part of creating mm. that future, course naturally they take their talents and gifts and ideas somewhere else yeah so that you're losing something that you could actually be fully bringing in and including yeah there's something in what you've said that really reminds me around this idea that in a in a very traditional hierarchical structured organization responsibility for the well-being of the whole kind of sits up at the top and in a sense people in the rest of the organization to some extent, are actively discouraged from playing a part in that, or they don't really have a, a route to be heard. And yet, if you think about something like the present crisis with the coronavirus, and we haven't really even seen the economic downturn that that's going to engender, however great you may be as a board, as a senior management team, you're not, you're not prepared for this. Nobody knows how to deal with this. So it's like that traditional model that all the expertise and the knowledge and the wisdom of how to run a company sits right at the top. Nothing can have prepared you for this. These are absolutely unprecedented times. And I think for me at that point, I'd want to think, well, anyone could have an idea about this. You know, let's get as many creative minds on on this challenge as we can. What if we listen to all parts of the organization? Maybe there's someone in a kind of far flung corner that we don't normally pay much attention to, but they could also see a way that perhaps the system can streamline or make itself more adaptive. You know, it's that listening all around the organization. Exactly. I think a lot of organizations have been doing that increasingly, particularly in the last 10 years, you know, really recognizing that you need to listen to all parts of the organization. But then the mechanisms and the creative um, policies, if you like, that then become culture don't necessarily follow. So it's more like little pockets or hearing from something here and there. What we've been talking about really is developing systemic wisdom. Mm. We're talking about actually...
Yeah, and I think well, two two things come up for me in, in what you've said. One is that you know, yes, what's possible in this kind of a sphere. Um, and I've forgotten what the other thing was. Oh, yes, about the qualities of listening. Yeah. Because like you were saying, like sometimes that organizations are waking up to the fact, oh, we need to listen to people. But in my experience, I, I think organizations can struggle to truly listen. Because there's a lot of expectation laid into those kind of ears, the, the way they set their ears up. You know, if you look at um, surveys and so on, when they've kind of putting questionnaires out through organizations, they're not truly open questions. They're very leading about what an organization wants people Wonderful. to say or is preventing people from saying. There's often the question you wanted them to ask, the question you wanted to respond to isn't on the list. Absolutely. And do you know you've just hit the absolutely key thing on the head, which is that when we're usually asking questions, we're coming from the current paradigm. We're yeah. coming from current reality with a certain set of ideas, expectations, beliefs, unconscious ideas about things. And so all we're doing is we're just measuring what we already know in one sense. The key to working in a generative way and working with consciousness is to truly find the question that unlocks the hidden potential. Yeah. It's to really land the question that if it were to be answered would make a palpable difference to the whole organization and to its people and to its markets. Well, that, that for me is like the question that you actually don't know the answer to. Exactly. And I think organizations shy away from asking the question that they don't know the answer to because of this fear that, well, in my position, I'm meant to know the answers. I'm meant to be in control. I'm meant to be planning. And actually, that takes some courage to really stand and, and to say, I don't know. This feels like a, a, you know, a really critical question for the organization. And I don't know in this moment how to respond. Exactly. It's in the not knowing that something new can happen. Yeah. And that's where I think that idea of, you know, we frame it as embracing uncertainty. To actually willingly step into that space. And it is a vulnerable space to say, here, I don't know. And I might be the CEO, but I don't know any more than the person who's most junior or yes. just started the company. Yes, and it's really important, not that, you just, that you're stepping into that space, but that you stay in the space. Long enough. Discomfort, that you really sit and you really look and listen and pay attention to the data that's really there and that you wouldn't ordinarily be paying attention to. So we know that lots of our techniques are embodied. They're mm -hmm. working with felt senses. They're working with intuition. They're working with a feeling, a quality. And it's drawing that into awareness and saying, okay, this is here. What's, what, what role is this playing? What's it trying to do? What's it trying to alert us to? And where's it pointing in terms of a pathway forward, a potential yeah. pathway forward? Yeah. So yes, that's really, really important. I think, I think that's so true that this, this sort of invisible layer of the organization that we're talking about, I mean, culture, you can't really put your finger on it, but you have a felt sense of what it's like, whatever the espoused values of the organization, everybody who's working there will have a felt sense of what it really feels like. So the kind of true values become apparent. And I like what you say that as well as perhaps pointing up problems that you've been choosing not to look at or not to tune in to and listen to, generally, as we've seen, this way of working allows you to see the resources that you're not using. There's generally some kind of a flow in that rather secretive, invisible space that you can actually begin to work with so that if something is stuck, there will be something that's flowing and you can kind of follow that track and trust that it will kind of just bring movement back into the organization, come out of that stuck place. Mm. And isn't it interesting, you, you called it secret. You see, in a way, if we think of it as secret, it almost has a quality of exclusivity. You know, it's like it's a secret, only certain people can know. But actually, in reality, what we've been doing is really inviting people into a space that says we all have access. 
we all know this. We know this in our bones. We feel it. We see it. We sense it in the workplace, in the interactions with others. We know when there are power plays going on. We know when something's a bit judge, judgmental, it's being distorted or something's being imposed on current reality. I, I always found that absolutely fascinating, you know, working yeah. with a rebrand. That's where I saw it the most, um, that you, you kind of get the espoused values and then you go and check it out with the people on the ground and you're saying, okay, guys, these are the new values and this is what we're going to stand for and this is the new logo and whatnot. And then you just watch the responses. And then yeah. you sort of, you know, if you're, if you're working really well with the people, of course you're doing the workshops and you're doing the work at a cultural level and you're helping bring people and sort of saying, come on, let's connect to this. Mm-hmm. But in a way, it's, it's not being co-created from the ground up. It's yeah. still in a way being inserted. As it yeah. were. I mean, that's how it was certainly 15, 20 years ago when I was doing that kind of big large scale rebrand work. Yeah. Um, and I always had, you know, the will, the, the desire to go a bit deeper to really let people sit in it and do more embodied process, which of course, you know, we know is possible. And I think, I think that's true. And I think to me, it is often held as a secret in the organization because we don't have permission to speak it. And as we know, you know, in systems, secrets cause problems because you've got an undercurrent of something in the organization that you're not really allowing to come into the air and to be kind of seen and healed it's 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 like a poison in the system I really hear you and when you say that it's true it does remind me of the hierarchy which withholds certain information to the next layer down and to the Mm -hmm. next layer down and it's kind of in in many senses it's a need to know Mm -hmm. and of course it's the absence of data that then can actually create problems elsewhere Um, and it's often have been very benevolent you know it's where we, you, you don't need to be bothered with this stuff this is the stuff we deal with yeah of course we know that then that that's definitely not going to support the creative conditions and it's not going to support um the co-creation that's actually possible with the employees when everybody is looking after the well-being of the whole yeah and i wonder whether you know if if organizations can be brave enough to start including this listening voice right round the organization maybe that's a step towards this idea of being able to kind of expand their vista and take in the whole and and then see their organization in relation to other organizations in their field you know it's this idea of lifting your gaze and expanding your horizon really about what you're taking in and what you're paying attention to yeah and I think the other thing is also that you're you're increasing sensitivity Mm -hmm. everybody's sensitivity which in a sense is in a sense meaning making making sense Mm -hmm. of what's going on but sensitivity is also the the ability to really sense what's needed to really as you say um have those moments, those flash moments of that insight that comes from the outside, you know, yeah. those moments of or, or great wisdom where it's not this or that, it's something completely else. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, they're, and they're you know, again, we kind of know this in a, in a very everyday way for ourselves. It's like you can be, you can be wrestling with something that feels like an issue that you just can't solve. And sometimes you just take a break and go out for a walk, you clear your head, you open, you know, your vista get some lungfuls of fresh air and somewhere on that walk, it will just pop in. It'd be like, oh, I, I've had an idea about that. I know what the next step is. And that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Just tuning in to those other kind of forces around us. The other aspect of this I was thinking about this morning, we can talk about kind of leadership capacities and so on for this different way of working, but it's not like a skill set. It's not like something, you know, here's a book, how, how to be more aware. <laughs> you know, these are awarenesses that we have to practice. It's a very different thing than thinking, okay, as a leader, I need to know X, Y, Z. I need this kind of skill set. It's building up a different repertoire where it's much more about, yeah, how do you feel? What do you sense? What do you kind of know in your bones about this? What does your gut tell you? And including that, like, you know, we talk about the four ways of knowing rather than just the kind of yeah. head knowledge. It's so interesting. Just as you were speaking there, you were reminding me of a wonderful post on LinkedIn the other day. And they were talking about vertical skills and horizontal skills mm-hmm. and sort of horizontal being, you know, more skills that you're acquiring, in, as it were, in your tool set. 
whereas the vertical skills was much more the growth trajectory, the growing mm. into and the growing into. And, and just as I was listening to you, it's sort of, I remembered a moment in time where I really felt like I had to make a shift and I had to move from being a sort of expert in marketing and branding and so forth and become this something other. And this sort of something other is this, I suppose, sort of super sensory mm-hmm. human being who could work differently, who could work in these capacities that you're describing. And I, I just noticed in the moment I was, I was sitting here that actually it took quite a lot of letting go. Yeah. You know, I, I was terribly safe in a way mm-hmm. in my mm-hmm. expert skill set and, and terribly um, certain. Interesting, we're back to certainty. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can do this and this and this and this is, these are the boundaries and I can push the boundaries, that's fine. But actually, when I'm moving into these other capacities, there's so much more qualities of humanity, qualities of being, qualities of leadership. And so for me, they're, they're capacities which, in a sense, life is giving us. But as mm-hmm. you say, they're also practices in awareness, in expanding our awareness of what's actually happening in the here and now, and truly working not just from self or from system, but what we call the field layer. Mm-hmm. The unified field that is the creating force behind life as we know it, mm. and I, and I think it, you know we often use spiral dynamics as a, a frame for how we're working, which really tracks this sort of evolutionary thread of thinking and being and actions and organisations and really the whole the whole of the production of of life. Mm. And when you think, you know, if you think back to say the nineteen fifties there was a lot more certainty, you know, and I guess people were really looking for certainty in that sort of post-war era where people would often stay in a job for life. Things were a bit more predictable, it felt like, you know, whether that was a perception of the time. And I think at, at the moment, we have really woken up to this awareness that we are a global species living on a single planet. You know, we cannot, even our economies that we used to think of as national economies, that's gone. This is a global economy. We have global social movements now that can happen like Quicksilver. I mean, these things can happen in the blink of an eye. And then when you add in the kind of the biosphere, I mean, even looking at this virus that never before in the history of the world has the whole of humanity been looking at the same issue at the same moment in time, within about a frame of two to three weeks that happened. Yes, exactly. Affecting different areas of the human, you know, human species differently, some a lot worse than others. But everyone's attention was on the same thing, affecting the whole of life. I mean, that to me is extraordinary. So if that's the times we're in, we really need to expand our frame of awareness to be able to deal with that level of complexity because even the most humble of organization or a single individual is subject to those same forces. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's really interesting. Of course, we've been a global world for a long time. There's always been global trade. There have always been the markets. There have always been those who have traveled to all the different parts of the world and had that more global perspective. And what you're highlighting, of course, is you know, global media and communications and social media mean that somebody on the other side of the world is, is a connection, is a, is a contact with us. Yeah. And they certainly in the last few years have taken great joy in meeting people all around the world through the various channels and having really lovely dialogues and seeing how they blossom and yeah. become friendships and invitations to meet sometimes. Yeah. Um, and so that's sort of, again, it's available to everyone. I think that's mm-hmm. really important. This is, a, this is a wonderful movement in terms of connecting everybody. Everybody is included in this phenomenon. But I think what you're pointing out here is that as we've upped the ante, as we're now seeing that climate change issues and other issues affect everyone and what happens over here affects us all over there, it's that, it's that really holding that in awareness and saying, okay, so if we know this, what do we need to do differently? How do we need to work with one another? How do we need to look after the whole and how do we need to look after these questions around sustainability and the future, which is, as you said, no longer just a national future. Mm-hmm. We would think in terms of, you know, maybe local regions or towns or nations. That's just not true anymore. We're breathing the it's same planetary, we're experiencing yeah. the same virus. 
Yeah. <laughs> and it, it strikes me as it, it's, it's, it's like the tools of perceiving that, that we also need to expand, not just how do we manage it? Because I think where we're struggling a bit is how do we perceive things on that scale? Because that little bit of head knowledge, whatever we think we knew, whatever books we've read or degrees we've taken, yeah. we can't solve those levels of complexity from that little bit of head learning. I mean, yeah. if you look at, they cannot create environmental models fast enough to meet the, the scale of change. You know, they can't find models that work. So yeah. something has to shift in how we are perceiving that sort of intricate, interdependent complexity. Yeah. And I think that does invite us to bring these other tools of awareness like sensing and perceiving, you know, what can we intuit? What can we sense is going on? Yes, and it's always that invitation back into the now, because as Mm. we know from the constellations work, you're only ever looking for the next movement and and in a way, minimal effort to create the next, or support rather, we're not even creating, we're following the next movement. And we're discovering, okay, so in this evolutionary intelligence that life already possesses, What's the next thing that's ready to happen? Yeah, and support that. That's critical, and it and it it takes out all the complexity, because what we're doing is we're honing in to the essence, the essential bit of the puzzle, if you like, which is a composite of all of those complex elements. But it's there, and because we're looking at it in a sense as it's ready to move. Yeah, uh, it's a very subtle process, as we know, and how yeah. you pay attention to that, and how you work with that. You know, it does require us to really withhold our judgments, our ideas, our hypotheses, hold everything very lightly and move with life and discover where it's moving. Yep. I think, I think there's a very different approach to the complexity because you allow the complexity, but you can't control it. It's still there. You still have an awareness of all that complexity. But then, as you say, we've talked a lot about finding the movement or in a sense, allowing the movement to find us. That sense that life is always growing. It's always evolving. That's the nature of life. And we are a part of that system. You know, we're not outside of it controlling it we're right in the midst of it so if we can pay attention to that and find out well what's moving in us or what feels like the right step like you say it's how to not manage the complexity but allow the complexity and find a a relatively simple route of just thinking well what's the next thing I can do yeah and I think the other thing you're highlighting is of course that we're looking at the impact in the moment So by that, what we're looking at is we're saying, okay, so if this is a a movement that serves the system or Mm -hmm. systems, then you see all the parts moving in relation to this change. You get to see it and you get to continue to see where it's working. In other words, that there is balance and there is a kind of harmonious movement between the parts. Um, It's like those mobiles, the hanging mobiles in the children's bedroom, where if you ping one bit, all the other parts move and adjust accordingly. Yeah. And that's what we're looking at. We want to be able to see the health of the whole. We want to be able to see all the parts in relationship to one another Yeah, as the movements occur. It's very important. And I guess, you know, bringing it back down to little individual everyday ways of seeing that systems within systems is understanding that, you know, within your family grouping or your friendship grouping if something happens to one member it's everyone is affected by that you know or even in the body I mean we know now that um like traditional medicine for all its its kind of efforts to heal the body quite often it'll it'll produce a drug that's that solves one problem but actually creates another and the difficulty of you know not seeing the body as a whole system of interrelated parts but rather there's a problem in the liver would we'll give this pill uh, yeah. but actually that's now created a problem somewhere else yes exactly because our, our western paradigm has been so much about looking at the issue through that very narrow lens of, of expertise in just that bit of the body yeah but of course that then you're not stepping back and working with wholeness so interestingly a whole host of you know medical doctors now have been training in all kinds of other forms including acupuncture and yeah. um, traditions from the east because they're beginning to see oh hang on if I touch this bit, yeah. this bit changes so how do I work with yeah. the hormone so or even 
teams working with patients and realizing we all need to get together and discuss yeah. this patient rather than, you know, just, just sending them off to someone else. And I've, I always use, there's a couple of um, slightly lighthearted examples of the unintended consequences <laughs> of our decisions about things. Yeah. So I remember some time back when you know, that there was the issue of overpopulation and, and China decided to have the single child rule that people were only allowed to have one baby in their mm. lives. And so they were trying to meet a big issue like overpopulation with this policy. But then what it produced was um, a whole generation of children that were so overindulged because they were, they were the one baby that um, there was huge problems of obesity because they'd, you know, they'd lavished food and love and indulgence on these children. And they grew up to be, I mean, this is, you know, from, from readings that I've had, I'm sure it's a bit of an oversimplification. But as a generation, they tended towards obesity. They didn't want to work. They just they didn't really have the right kind of level of contribution to society that they actually changed the policy. Yes, that's a and wonderful I, example, Sarah. Yeah. yeah, well, I was just listening to you as well, just thinking of the experiences of loneliness of a single child without siblings to play with, yeah. you know, that will affect their sense of self. It's so really interesting that the sense of self in that generation, you know, for a number of decades, it's very powerful. It has fundamentally shifted something within culture. And as you say, having a different set of consequences. And that's exactly the point is that when you're working systemically, you see in a much more whole way. Yeah, you're able to see some of the potential consequences. Not everything, That's of course it. not. Yeah, um, but at least you're taking in lots yes. of different consequences at the same time. Yeah, and then there's more wisdom, if you like, to mind yeah. to move forwards, and that's really important. Yeah. I think that's it. It's that beginning to see that you can't just look at your little bit in isolation. We are really part of a larger whole. And and the other um, very lighthearted example I have around this. <laughs> one day my husband came home and fitted one of these soft closed toilet seats uh, where you just tap it and it just kind of gradually closes, which was fantastic in our house. But then whenever we went to anyone else's house and went to the loo, we'd just be going, because we'd, like, we'd be flipping the toilet seat and they didn't necessarily have one. And it was just, again, it was such a silly little example, but it showed me that what you do in one part of the system will have an effect on other parts of the system, even if that was just us banging toilet lids in other people's yeah, houses. That's a, no, that's an absolutely brilliant example because, again, we're talking about behaviours. Yeah. Behaviours change you know, yeah. in China with the toilet seat. These are great yeah. examples. Yeah. And, and of course, the one thing that the mind likes is stability. It wants things to all be pretty much the same. So it's all knowable, it's all manageable, don't have to live with too much fear. So we're always trying to kind of maintain the status quo within manageable boundaries. And of course, we both know that actually what we often have to do is to really challenge those boundaries. You know, we have to disrupt current reality. We have yeah. to reveal the unconscious rules of the system back to itself and say, do you realize, chaps? Yeah. Do you is, want this? This is what you're creating. These are the unintended consequences of this particular culture. Yeah. And, you know, he, here's how if you do want to move with it, evolve it into something where you've got more potential expressing itself. You know, this is, this is what we're looking at. But I, I, I feel like even in this conversation, I've heard myself say several times, and this is really important, as if I know something. And I think that's <laughs> a really interesting clue that actually, yes, it's important to me and to us, but hang on, you know, I need to take a step back and breathe again and say, what you're really talking about by way of capacity is that ability to really withhold the judgment, is to yeah. really see spaciously, to really take in the wider picture, not just the bit that I'm particularly interested in and think yeah. is terribly important. I can laugh at myself. Yeah. But actually, it's like, of course, we've all got bias. We've all got this judging mind that's continually filtering and telling us what's what. So we are back to that you know, fundamental of how do we open up the field? How do we open the space? How do we give future potential a chance to show itself to us? Yeah. That's the key. Yeah. How do we step into the unknown? And as you said earlier, I think stay there long enough to really, that, that kind of deep listening to those kind of quieter voices in life, you sometimes need to spend a little time there. It's not an instant fix. Absolutely. It's what we call the visioning phase. 
you know it's that really getting to know what's here you know what's been in the history of this person or this place what's here currently in the now that's showing up with um, perhaps creating some challenge some tension or some kind of blockage if that's true and also you know what's the future that we're moving towards what's the desired future and how do we work with intention you know strong mm -hmm. intention as a kind of inner compass as we do move forward so that we can then discern what we need to discern yeah. and not just let the everyday mind the judging mind kind of run the show for us and show yeah. us the things it already knows because it's only ever going to pay attention to what it knows because it's reinforcing current reality yeah so i guess um we don't know how long this podcast will last <laughs> or how it will be received but I guess in bringing it to something of a close and we can always come back and mm. return to this topic I guess mm. the the themes that I'm hearing are around actually if we really want to embrace uncertainty we need to kind of invest in the power of pause take a break just stop and give yourself some time and space in order to reflect and to really look and really listen without yeah. judgment and expectation and yeah, just really sense. keep looking keep listening yeah, yeah. for me it's that uh, beautiful image often arrives of uh, you know when you see a snail moving along the ground <laughs> it's got that extraordinary kind of sticky skin and those amazing antenna and it's kind of attuned to its environment and of course it's registering hot and cold and mm. texture and everything else i feel that's kind of how we need to be we need to have that attunement and capacity for sensing and being really present because then in that uncertainty there's the openness there's the curiosity mm. there's the discovery in the moment of what's really here and you know what's trying to come through to us really what's trying to get past the conscious mind and allow itself a, a way to come into the into the world yeah something different embrace uncertainty work with what is and yeah see what wants to happen yeah perfect thank you so much for being here today Annie always a pleasure hi thanks for tuning in to the generative work podcast with me Sarah James Wright exploring all aspects of future business and conscious leadership mm -hmm.